Season 2, Episode 10, An Escalating Sequence of Unpleasant Thanksgivings. Don't talk, just listen. Outside of her own mind and body. All anyone saw when they looked at her was a little boy, indistinguishable from the other pampered brats that wore clothing more expensive than most people's salaries, who shut down entire stores and restaurants with their tantrums, who were already indoctrinated in the languages of hate. If there was something within Cassandra, that told her even then that she was not of these people to which she belonged. She kept it to herself. When Cassandra was five years old, the Thanksgiving dinner consisted entirely of herself, her mother, and her father. The staff had not liked to come in on the holiday, but when had the man McRae ever cared what anyone else liked? The family passed the day on the couch, while behind them food was prepared and a table was made. Cassandra's mother sipped from a bottomless wine glass while her father flipped through newspaper after newspaper, occasionally halting to mark individual columns of numbers with a pen. Outside, the roars of the parade carried through the thick bulletproof glass that surrounded the family. Cassandra could look from the TV, which was showing the parade, and out the window to see the same giant balloons moving gently between the skyscrapers. Cassandra wished to be outside, among those throngs. She wished to gape and gawp at the massive balloons, her mind imagining a scenario where one of the men holding the rope that bound Spider-Man to the ground suddenly dropped his line and Cassandra had to grab it. But somehow, all the other ropes broke and it was just her holding just the one line and soon she was soaring above the crowd and above the trucks and then above all the buildings. She would inch up the rope until she could touch Spider-Man and then she would clamber on top of his red and blue back. She would steer him somehow and together they would drift happily to worlds beyond worlds. She did not know yet, but even then, even at five years old and with the vestigial organs still fixed in place between her legs, the other worlds called to Cassandra. Presently, the staff called that dinner was ready to be served. Cassandra's father came to the table in a huff, looking for reasons to be displeased. Cassandra did not understand the columns of numbers and their import. But she understood that whatever message had been spoken within those codes of digits had not been good for the various business dealings her father dealt in. It was wrong to say that Black Cloud had come over him, 
since a black cloud mood hung over the mammoth ray at all times. But the cloud cover could be benign, little more than an atmosphere of displeasure that passed by without incident. Today, the clouds were boiling, stewing. It wasn't a question of if the lightning would strike, but of when and who it would hit. He found spots on his silverware. The napkins were folded wrong and the fabric felt coarse to the touch. The turkey was too dry, the cranberries too soggy. The wrong kind of butter had been procured and it ruined the taste of the rolls and mashed potatoes both. The peas still felt frozen and why were the carrots even out? He hated carrots, goddammit and had always hated them, so why in the fuck had carrots been put out for his goddamn Thanksgiving dinner? Cassandra's mother finally found the bottom of the bottomless wine glass. As a staff member scurried to refill it, she fixed her husband with a drowsy look of contempt. You sound like a child, she drawled. The man McRae turned from his plate to his wife, displeased with both possessions. His look had been sour, but now Cassandra saw it curdle into something else. Is that right? He said. I seem like a child to you? Cassandra's mother enjoyed her drinks, it was true. But normally, even when she was in the deepest depths of her cups, she could sense danger as it mounted. But oh, the holidays have a way of inspiring us to actions we ordinarily would never have the courage to undertake. What a special time of year. A big dumb baby, she laughed, fussing like a little spoiled brat. At the ER later that night, the man McRae would explain to the doctor on call that he had not been looking when he stuck the fork out to retrieve another slice of turkey while his wife had reached out with her hand to snag another roll, the bread basket sitting right next to the turkey. The ER doctor, understanding what anyone with eyes could understand, notified her superiors about what she believed. Her superiors escalated the concern up the chain of command, where it landed on the desk of men with a vested interest in money from McRae's pocket landing in their own. Cassandra remained sitting at the table for 15 minutes after the adults had bustled out of the room. 15 minutes before someone came to clean the table and found her still sitting there, frozen. 15 minutes watching the trail of blood slowly expand across the white linen of the dining table. A flower blooming to swallow. When Cassandra was 10 years old, her mother did not join them for dinner. Her body sat in an urn on the mantelpiece while her soul was lost to mystery. 
and her presence hung heavy over the man McRae and Cassandra. Cassandra knew by then that she was a she, regardless of physiology or the dictates of the world in which her father forced her to live. Cassandra shifted in the suit and pants her father had forced her to wear, uncomfortable in the outfit, in her skin, in her life. Her father would not look at her. He shoved forkful after spoonful after forkful into his mouth, not even stopping to chew before the next glob of sustenance was forced down. Dad, Cassandra began to say. He threw his utensils down and stormed off before the second D sounded. Nothing had been right between them since Cassandra's mother died. Well, in point of fact, nothing had ever really been right between Cassandra and her father. How could things be right when whole sections of her life had to be carefully hidden away at all times? How could two people form a whole when one is bending much of their time and will to denying who they are in the presence of the other? Cassandra's mother had understood. She would take Cassandra to the mall, and the two would laugh and clap as Cassandra tried on outfit after outfit, in these fleeting moments feeling actually like herself. Outside of dressing rooms, the only other time her life was her life was during the long walks her mother took through a local state forest, the only time of the day when Cassandra's mother could convince the man McRae to let alone with the guards that otherwise tailed her from place to place. The man McRae, you see, had grown weary of riding the up and down roller coaster of fluctuating patterns and trends, and opted instead for a capitalistic means which ensured that his fortunes never ever failed. But these strategies left victims, and these victims were prone to appearing unbidden and demanding their pound of flesh in recompense. But so long as precautions were taken, he allowed Cassandra and her mother these walks. Cassandra would happily skip and dance through the forest, rejoicing in the way the skirts flapped around her knees, in the feel of lipstick lingering against her tongue, touching at the tendrils of the wig her mother had purchased, imagination managing to attach the follicles to her own head. These were the happiest times of her life, and she never failed to tell her mother so. Her mother seemed to enjoy their time there as well, though her smiles often seemed sad somehow. And sometimes, Cassandra would find her mother's eyes red-rimmed and lined. It's all right, baby, her mother assured her. Mommy needs this time too. And anyway, it's enough to see you so happy. Perhaps it was this which led Cassandra's mother to insist they keep up the tradition even on the Saturday, when the storm clouds whirled and the winds howled and the forecast promised thunder and lightning of biblical proportions. Or maybe it really was selfish in the end. Her mother so fixated on maintaining this one aspect of her life that she lost sight of and then plain lost the rest of her life. Or perhaps she had known exactly how the day would go. 
Cassandra looked back on that drive to the forest, and it really did seem to her that her mother really did seem quiet and withdrawn in a way she never had been before. In the days beneath the black sun, when dreams were proving to betray truths, and one could find that future watching from mirrors as readily as reflections, Cassandra would wonder if her mother had foreseen the disaster to come in the forest. Had she known that fate was cute to swallow her up and surrendered herself to it? Had she hoped that Cassandra would be consumed as well, mother and daughter washed away just as God had drowned the world and spared only one old drunk and his boat. Whatever the reason, Cassandra's mother brought them to the forest. Thinking about that day now, in her cell, Cassandra could remember how the usual sense of joy and freedom had quickly abated as the storm picked up and the trees began to sway and crack. She had asked her mother, concerned, if maybe they should find something else to do today. Nonsense, her mother had said. There was still plenty of time before the storm hit. Cassandra did not see her mother die, but the funeral was closed casket. In the years after, she would conjure an endless litany of mutilations that might have marked her mother's body, from impalings to jagged animal claws, to scorch marks to entire sections flattened paper skinny. Sometimes, she would imagine her mother repaired whole, resting in her coffin with skin the color of cream, skin that seemed glazed as if under ice. She was only sleeping, yes, only sleeping, and any moment now the joke would end, her eyes would snap open, and things would go back to the way they were, to the way they were supposed to be. Cassandra hopped down from the table and followed in her father's wake to the office he kept in the apartment. Her father had tried to slam the door behind him, but had done too forceful a job, and so the door had bounced back open and remained with the crack exposed. She placed her eye to the crack and saw him, her father, at his desk, head in his hands and his shoulders convulsing. Cassandra gasped at the sight, as shocked as she would have been had she spied him with the secretary bent over the desk and his pants around his ankles. She tried to stifle the gasp, but it was out, and the man McRae had sharp ears, even then. He sat bolt upright and immediately stilled his tears. Get out, he demanded. Get away! She turned and fled, feeling his burning red eyes on her the entire time she raced back to her room, knowing all the while that this was just one more thing he could never and would never forgive her for. When Cassandra was 21 years old, she and her boyfriend Dylan decided to just order in for Thanksgiving that year. Neither had much scratch to spend, but Cassandra was feeling a lot to be thankful for. She had a job in the library that paid a decent wage, and where the people seemed to like her just fine. 
and left her to herself when need be, which she liked just fine. Her hair was at a length where she could make some wild choices, some more successful than others. And when she looked in the mirror now, it truly seemed to be her looking back. And Dylan, it wasn't love, she reflected from her cell. Priya Patel, yeah, that was love. Cassandra's heart ached just to think Priya's name. But Dylan, he'd been a boy, and a boy was what she needed then. If it wasn't love, he made her feel special, feel safe. And when you are young, that can feel enough like the real thing. She hadn't seen her father since her surgery. He tracked her down, she wasn't sure how. After one look at her bandaged body, one glimpse at the unmistakable outlines of what was and what had been removed, he was at her with his fists. Still, it could have been worse. The man McRae tracked down everything there was to know about the doctors who had performed the operation. He shuttered the hospital, then used his contacts to make sure not a single person involved ever continued a career in medicine. Even the fucking janitor found himself blacklisted. Cassandra had said nothing as he dragged her back home, denying herself even the ability to cry while the staff bound her chest and tailored new suits and shirts to hide her attributes. She was not allowed out very often, and on those few occasions where she was permitted to be out in public, it was always under strict dress codes and even stricter supervision. She endured this for a time, but one day she bolted, taking both her escort and herself by surprise. All the time she ran, she kept expecting a heavy hand to clamp around her shoulder for the dream to burst and dump her onto the cold concrete. The heavy hand never fell, so she kept running, ran all the way to Dylan's arms, allowing herself to be carried off. Cassandra left no traces, even going by a different, different name. Even still, sometimes she would wake up at night with old pains throbbing, convinced that the oddly solid shadow in the corner was her father, silently fuming over the side of Cassandra in bed with a man, her new breasts pressed to his naked back. But he was gone, she reasoned, long gone. Today, there was nothing on the docket besides lounging on a couch and pecking at the boxes of Chinese food. She didn't even think anything of the doorbell suddenly ringing. Dylan had been up to fetch more food, so he answered. Cassandra was watching the parade when he came back into the room, too engrossed trying to remember some lost childhood fantasy to note that a second pair of footprints approached behind Dylan's socked step. Who? she began to say, looking up. Her father stood behind her boyfriend, her father looking thin and pale, with a jaw set so tight that it might as well have been wired shut. You, he growled, are coming home. And she did. God help her, she did. Now, there are no day trips whatsoever. The penthouse apartment became home and prison both. He gave up trying to cure her of herself and instead focused on containment. 
Cassandra knew that really all she had to do was wait, play the role he demanded of her, and wait for nature to take its course on Amanda Gray. He may have been tough as leather, but time is time even against the toughest of old bastards. All that was required of Cassandra was patience. She surprised herself to realize that she was not patient in the slightest. It seemed to her that it made no sense to dither away your time on earth to better suit the timetable of someone else, someone who had made it abundantly clear that you were viewed as troublesome property, not a person unto yourself. Cassandra made her plans. She gathered her resources. She went to bed one night, confident that the next day she would put her plan to action and escape her father for good. Nothing short of the apocalypse would stop her this time. The next day, the black sun rose. When Cassandra was 27 years old, she was led from her cell into a room that was disconcertingly similar to the apartment where she and her father and mother had lived. It was a good likeness, but only a likeness. There was a sterile quality to these quarters that betrayed their disuse. A real home has laughter and tears and love and tragedy worn into the surfaces like layers of paint and varnish, whereas this room was untouched. Cassandra was bound to a table that was almost but not quite the same table from her memories, her bonds secured by men who would not meet her eyes. The woman supervising this work would, her cool expression betraying neither hatred nor pity, she may as well have been taking the dog out for its evening bowel movement. Why is her mouth covered? Her father's voice. She had not been around when he received the bullet that stripped away much of his lower face and changed his speech forever. But she had heard the stories and imitations that littered the city. Rather than competing with her own memories, the caricatures and legends had quickly overtaken her mental images of the man, so that it was this boogeyman that dragged her screaming and bloody out of that motel room. It was with that voice that he berated her, and all she was, and all she loved. The other woman began to say, We thought, She is my daughter! The man McRae screeched. The gag was quickly lifted from Cassandra's mouth, and her bonds were loosened, though not, of course, completely broken. She thought about sinking her teeth into the nearest hand or arm that came within reach. She considered screaming her lungs out, hurling every invective imaginable at everyone in the room. Instead, she did what she normally did in the presence of her father. She sat quietly. The man McRae took his seat, not at the head of the table, but by her side. What remained of his face attempted to upturn into a smile. You look lovely, he said. Just lovely. Cassandra did not feel lovely. She looked down at herself, 
at the outfit that had been presented to her without comment that morning. Cassandra could only have described the dress as looking like Lisa Frank vomited onto Judy Garland's outfit from The Wizard of Oz. The ensemble was hot pink with polka dots, complete with uncomfortable heels at the same register on the spectrum. She wore her hair short out in the city, but had not been permitted to cut it once she was taken captive. That morning, an extremely uncomfortable looking woman named Margaret had come to the cell and braided her hair into long pigtails, chattering away nervously or risking occasional looks back at the armed and unamused guards at the door. Lastly, what felt like an inch of makeup had been plastered to her face, while her lips were painted a thick ruby red color. The result, she thought, was not feminine in the way that any woman would imagine or desire. It was the idea of feminine that could only be fostered in a mind that had been bound at an early age and only allowed to mature and grow in limited directions. At first, Cassandra had assumed this was some kind of punishment, a mockery meant to degrade and humiliate her, presenting a warped version of her asserted gender in an effort to drown it out of her the way an aggrieved parent will make a child smoke the entire pack of cigarettes after the scamp has been found out smoking one. But watching him watch her, Cassandra realized that something else was happening. Something that, if possible, disturbed her even more. This was not mockery. The look in his eyes was not scorn. The look in his eyes was love. This was his attempt to be kind. So lovely, he murmured once more. He took up his utensils and began to bring vegetables and fruit from one platter onto his own plate. All Cassandra could think of was the many midnight hunts for any kind of sustenance to keep people in the hospital fed. The nights awake beside some forlorn trap or another, hoping for any scrap of protein that might come by. And here was her father, throwing himself a lavish spread. No, she reminded herself, it wasn't for himself. This was all for her. She felt sick. He began to cut the food into portions, spearing some with his fork. This he raised to her lips his own deformed mouth attempting to make the whirring sound of an airplane swooping through the air. Coming in for a landing, he cheered. Cassandra's mouth fell open in shock, and he promptly slid the fork home. She bit down instinctively, the brilliant flavor of the fruit lighting up the inside of her mouth like a fireworks show. There's my girl, the man McRae said. My big, strong girl, who's up for some more? He began to prepare another forkful of food. Dad, Cassandra said. Dad, what are you doing? He kept his attention focused on his culinary efforts. Making up for lost time, he said, bringing up another load. This time, Cassandra squirmed away but that other woman caught her head and squeezed her cheeks open. The fork was ground against her teeth as the man McRae worked it in. When the fork was removed, 
so too were the hands dropped from her cheeks. Bitch! Cassandra snarled. Now, now! The man McRae snapped. That is no way for a nice young lady to talk. You keep up like this, and I'll have to wash your mouth out with soap. Dad. He flinched when she said it. What the hell is this? What are these clothes or this meal? What are you doing? I told you, he said patiently, taking up a fork and cutting portions off the steaming meat that sat on the table. What the meat was, or had been, Cassandra could not have said. I'm making up for all the time I could have been spending with my little girl. Time that I frittered away. But, but you always hated that I'm trans. I did. You said it was my fault that mom died. I did. You told me that if I wanted my dick gone so bad, language, that you cut it off while I was asleep and have done with it. You said that to me. I did. So, so then, what the hell is going on? The man McRae sighed and set down the utensils. He folded his hands, and Cassandra had the sudden, hilarious thought of this mutilated thing sitting her down at the kitchen table to give some classic bit of homespun father-to-child wisdom, like a demon crawled out of hell so it might tell you about the birds and the bees. You know what I fixated on the most, he said now. The name. Your name. When you told me that your true name was Cassandra, and that the name I had given you was only a dead thing. I just about lost my mind. I took it as rejection. And then, when you kept running away, silly girl, that didn't help any. The whole time I had my men out scouring the city trying to find you, I wasn't sure what I was going to do once I had you back. Let me tell you, Cassandra said, you were going to kill me. About that, I don't have a single doubt. He hung his head. It breaks my heart to hear you say that. And it breaks my heart to know that you may be right. But the night before we recovered you, I had a dream. No, a vision. Yes. It was while the great beast lay waste to the city when the ground quaked and shook. I took a sleeping pill and quickly fell into a long and deep dream. What did you dream about? Cassandra asked. I don't remember, the man McRae answered. 
But what I do know is that when I awoke, your name had fallen from my mind like the dead thing it had always been. There was only Cassandra. And when the next day I learned that my soldiers had recovered you from the corpse of that creature, I knew that even in the darkest of days, there's a light shining on me. There are still blessings to be thankful for. There are forces greater than ourselves at work always, and they brought you back to me so that I might tell you. And here his teeth filled with tears and the wads of scarred tissue that formed his lower face quivered in the approximation of a trembling lip. My God, Cassandra thought, this is an Oscar clip. That I love you. That I am ready to share my love with you. He wiped his eyes. A sniff from behind drew Cassandra's attention to the female guard, who was herself rubbing her damp, red eyes. Cassandra looked from her father to this woman, and then back again. And then she began to laugh, louder and harder than she ever had in her life before. When Cassandra was 27 years old, she'd had just about enough. Are you fucking kidding me? Language! Are you out of your fucking mind? She kept laughing, noticing, but not caring, had the expressions of her father and the other woman had begun to darken. You have spent my entire, my entire life hating me and making me hate myself. And now what? You decide that you've decided you shall have a place in my life? That's not a choice you get to make. We can be a family, her father insisted. You and I am this overboy here. This is not just about what you or I might want, my daughter. It is his will. His? Cassandra asked, fury forgotten. Who is he? He has as many names as he has faces, Miss Overby recited. And he has as many faces as the stars on high, for they are his eyes watching over us. Cassandra looked from one person to the next, sure that she was missing something. Are you? She began. Are you trying to talk about God? He is that, yes. But he is so much more. He awaits us in the red world. It is his eye 
that rests above our city. It is by his hand that we came to this country, and it is by his will that we will rule it. Dad, Cassandra said gently, Dad, I don't know what you think is going on, but you have to. He leapt towards her suddenly, grasping her face with long, cold fingers. All your life, I failed you. I failed you because I could not see beyond my own selfish life. But I see now. I see that there is so much more than myself. He has shown me just as he has shown me how to love you by taking that dead thing from my mind. Just as he has shown me how to stop that rescue mission coming for you. Cassandra's eyes bulged. What? The man the gray stroked her cheek. Your little girlfriend, Priya, a few others, a tin pot wizard. They've been preparing for a while, and now they plan to steal you from me. But Daddy won't let them, baby. Daddy won't let you go ever again. Later, as she sat in her cell, unable to rid herself of the taste of blood, Cassandra would wonder over the sudden ferocity of her response. She had not known she was going to bite him until her teeth were clamped tight on the flesh between his thumb and pointer finger. Even now, after so long be the black sun, after all she had seen, it still amazed her just how far flesh could stretch. A blow to the head had ended the attack, and she came to in her cell with a head that ached and a mouth that tasted like pennies. The headache was not only from the blow, but from all her father's talk. He knows not what he does, she muttered, not knowing why. It stirred memories of a half-remembered dream. Three chairs in a witch's house. She spoke the words now, remembering as they came to her. The one who must never awaken strains against his prison beneath the red sky. He has two servants who will hasten his rise. One I don't know, but who knows me. One I know too well, but who knows not what he does. So, it wasn't just the family squabble. It wasn't just two people trying to work through their issues. It was a matter of gods. An entire world's hung in the balance. Well, Cassandra said aloud, fuck. Hey everybody, this is your extremely sore host, 
Brandon Foley welcoming you back for another episode of Black Sun Dispatches. Uh, I would not expect very many more episodes to feature lots of dialogue from Amanda Gray because <laughs> it hurts to do that voice. <laughs> Thank you for listening, uh, as always, to Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Uh, Cinepunks has tons of great shows, including, of course, Cinepunks, uh, Loud Fast Philly, Horror Business, The Mandate, and tons of other great programming. Uh, as, as well as cool writing on the Cinepunks website. Uh, we are sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, which you can reach at xlvacx.com. Very cool clothing, very cool designs, very, very affordable. Against Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. If you want to sponsor Black Sun Dispatches or on Cinepunks programming, please hit us up at the Patreon, which is on the Cinepunks website at cinepunks.com. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, please make my pain and suffering worth it by leaving us a positive review uh, and rating. It really helps get the word out about the show. So you can follow me on Twitter at the True Brand F, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Black Sun Dispatch's logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers, and the music is Winter by E.L. Heath. Uh, so that's it for this month. Uh, we'll have one more episode this year. Uh, that will come out, I believe, on December 17th, uh, and then we'll see you in 2019. Uh, so, like I said, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, I hope you enjoy the next one, and I hope you'll keep on rocking the new year. You're right, I said it. Bye, everybody. Have a good one.